All right, everybody, I realized I did not give you a turning point in your Bible. Gospel of John, everybody. Gospel of John. Gospel of John and chapter 8. Chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8. I'm going to turn there myself. And um, hey, it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? I'm excited today to preach to you on something, which I'll get to in just a minute. Don't worry, we're not making it up as we go along, I promise, I promise. We, <laughs> well, maybe a little, but not a lot, okay, most of it is already there. But I do want to highlight those who may be here for the first time. We just want to celebrate you. Can we put our hands together and honor them? We are glad that you're here worshiping with us. And listen, I, you know, there's no such thing as brownie points, but if there were, this is one of those Sundays after Thanksgiving, y'all, in the house of the Lord. And um, again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And we are, we're in between. We're in between Sundays, okay? So today is a standalone message. And then next Sunday, we kick in a series that we, we've run before and done before with some newer versions and newer messages, but we're going to be doing Christmas at the movies. And so we want to let you know about that. It's a great time to invite a friend or two. But listen, as a church, we believe in what Jesus said, so you can invite your enemies as well. All right? We're enemy friendly, so you can invite your friends, your enemies, your frenemies, whoever, and uh, we're going to be spending three Sundays as we move to Christmas Eve. Can y'all believe that's even on the docket of our lives? Man, where has this year gone? It has moved quickly, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Well, let's get to it. Today, I've entitled the message, I think the two words that I've titled this message, I think you're going to know where I'm going pretty quickly. Today's message is entitled, Shedding Shame. Shedding shame. Um, in the tool belt of Christianity, in your relationship with God, your relationship with others, this is one of the spiritual weapons you need in your life. Because you may not realize it, but you have a very loud shame voice. And it's particular and unique to you. I don't know if you've ever known this, but one of the tactics, we call that spiritual warfare, one of the tactics of the enemy is to shame you. And that shame often leads to discouragement, and that discouragement often leads to distance, and that distance leads to distance between God and you. It's a tactic. It's a play as old as time itself, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, the beginning and it's a remarkable, remarkable tactic of the enemy. And the scriptures declare in 1 Peter, it says, uh, be of a sober mind, be of sober mind, be alert, be focused, be intentional, be diligent, because your enemy roams around like a roaring lion. And what, what, what's he doing? Shaming you many times. He's shaming you. He knows the power of shame. I'll just be honest. I know the power of shame. I'd love to say, you know, pastor's got this figured out. Uh, pastor's overcome all of this. No, this is, this is something that no matter the season on the mountaintop, the season in the valley, the season on the hillside, irrespective of that, the enemy of your soul looks to use shame to discourage you. If you think about it, 
You ever had a vision problem? Like, I just can't see my future. God, I I can't dream anymore. I can't think straight anymore. I can't get excited anymore. If you follow that all the way down, there's a good chance it's rooted in shame. Rooted in something, someone, some moment, some season in your past. The enemy has come to accuse you. And that accusation leaves us feeling shame. I don't want to necessarily define or I don't have a detailed definition, but I have a couple descriptions. I'm borrowing a couple descriptions of what shame is. So Brené Brown, who is a uh, professor, psychiatrist, she's, she's actually very popular, very incredibly popular TED Talk, if you've ever heard of TED Talks. Tremendously uh, popular TED Talk on shame. But in that, she defines shame is the intensely painful feeling. Isn't it painful? Painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. There's a reason that's popular, because it hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? Isn't that what shame feels like? If you think about all the way back with Adam and Eve in the garden, I think they'd be like, yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. It, it, it's like a rush of adrenaline, not a good adrenaline, just a, a rush of adrenaline. You ever been just like kind of caught in shame or that shame feeling? I was, I was in a discipleship class one time and they're like, define what shame feels like. I was like, a rush of blood to the head for me. It's just like, ooh, I just want to run. Like sometimes you reflect, you ever have those memories and man, you don't need the enemy to help you at all. You're just doing it all by yourself. You, you think back to a bad day or a bad season and whew, just like a flood of shame overcomes you and it, 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 it paralyzes you. It's, it's like the heavy hand of condemnation. Come on, how many of you just love the heavy hand of condemnation? Like some of you are excited about getting together with family because you're like, man, I hope mommy and daddy, man, they dropped the heavy hand of condemnation. I didn't think so. I didn't think any of us were excited. But, but you know what that feels like? And quickly we're like, I am not in a comfortable place. It's, it's, it's as she said, that intensely painful feeling or experience. There's another definition. Shame is the experience. For some, this may resonate with you. Shame is the experience of judging who we are against the image that significant adults in our childhood gave us through their actions, words, and gestures. When we feel shame, we see ourselves as having failed to live up to the fantasy image created of us. Jane Middleton Moss. Mm. I think in that quote, you know where my mind goes? To Peter. To Peter, not post-resurrection. Peter pre-crucifixion. When his eyes lock in with Jesus after he's just knowingly denied his Savior. Jesus? Hardly know him. It's just this, and their eyes lock The cock crows and Peter runs out weeping for the cloak of shame that he's now carrying over himself. You know, when Jesus is having breakfast with him on the beach, you know what Jesus is doing when he affirms, which is the language of the Father, affirms Peter. 
Three times for each denial, Jesus says, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved. The power of shame can cripple the vision, the beauty, the joy God has for your future. It is one of the greatest tactics the enemy of our soul applies to our life. And it's good for us to be aware. It's good for us to be in the know of the enemy's tactics. For many, we see circumstances as enemy (laughs) tactically attacking us. There is some of that, no doubt about it. But oftentimes, it's in the stillness, it's in the quiet, it's in the isolation of our day when we're driving from our home to work, when we're having our daydreaming thoughts in the middle of work or in the middle of a conversation, the enemy will play on memories, on our past. And what he does is he begins to conjure up within us a sense of unworthiness, a sense of fear, a sense of despair. And at its bottom root, I would say a fear of abandonment that God wants nothing to do with us. And that may be a part of our personal stories that we had significant others in our lives, significant adults in our lives as a child, who they really helped clothe us and cloak us in shame. But here's the deal. We're now in a place. We've got to be concerned about what we're doing, about the shame we're living with. We can't blame it onto others We have to, if you will, mature in our faith and become very cunning towards the tactics and the lies of the enemy of our soul. I've got a few fill-in-the-blanks for us. I I, I don't want to propose this as a fun exercise, uh, but it can be helpful for us. I think shame has a not-enoughness. I've noticed this in my own life. I notice uh, one of the ways the enemy tries to uh, assault my self-confidence, my joy, my peace, my passion, my abundant prosperity, thank you, Jesus, for all you have for me mentality, is he loves to come in with a sense of not enoughness. I like to fill in these blanks. You ever had this thought, I'm not blank enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not financially responsible enough. I'm not relationally healthy enough. How about this one? I'm not strong enough. Maybe you're told that on the sports field. You're just not strong enough, or you're not good enough. You're not beautiful enough. Here's one for us men. You're not man enough. You ever heard that? Don't raise your hand. Me neither. (laughs) You're not man enough. You know, it's like, I know. That's why I play soccer. No, I'm kidding. You're not, you're not man enough. You're not wealthy enough. Ooh, how about this? You're not courageous enough. And that's what the enemy whispers to our soul, isn't it? You're not good enough. Or how about phrases like damaged goods? Boy, doesn't he use that one sometimes, huh? Ah, you're an afterthought. The shame is the tactic of the enemy. Shame has a voice. I wrote down a few thoughts as well. You could do well to spend some time filling in the blanks. I don't want to propose. I know the blanks that the enemy comes to, to trigger within you, but I'm familiar enough with the territory that I know what he does to my soul. Also know 
some of my first thoughts or where the enemy tries to get me. When I'm waking up, he doesn't wait till the end of the day. It's some of the first thoughts, and we got to be on guard. Peter is not haphazardly encouraging a persecuted church uh, in, 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 in the distant area of Asia Minor as early Christians under persecution. He's not just casually saying, ah, you know, when you feel like it, be on guard. Be sober-minded. No, he, he, he's saying be alert. Be alert. Be intentional. Be aware. The enemy doesn't care who or whom he uses. The enemy will use tactics. And shame has a voice. I'm never good enough. I'm worthless. I think we put some of the quotations. Yeah, you see it. What's wrong with you? Try harder. How about this one? Who do you think you are? You ever get that seed of a, a new business? Maybe a seed of entrepreneurship in your mind, a, a stepping out. Okay, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share a video. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a business. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the gospel with someone. Be ready for shame to come in. You? Sharing the gospel? Are, uh, excuse me. Are, are you aware of your past? I mean, just like the enemy? Yeah, you're on fire now. Just give it some time, okay? <laughs> Shut up, enemy. All right. Who do you think you are? Stupid, 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 or other name-calling. Sometimes our shame has, uh, says things like this. If you really knew me, you would reject me. That is the echo chamber of shame, and it comes. It comes to bring a sense of distance, distance here between God and us, but then also naturally, naturally the byproduct is distance between others and God. I grew up with a phrase, not as much from my parents, but at all boys preparatory school in Cape Town, South Africa, a very proper preparatory school. And one of those famous phrases was, shame on you. And listen, I was that kid, y'all. It's like, who's doing it now? Oh, Paul. <laughs> guilty, guilty. <laughs> I was familiar with what we called the headmaster's office. And if I wasn't in the office, they had a nice bench outside, that, 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 that bench of shame. <laughs> what are you here for? Oh, I think good grades. <laughs> I think... Uh, Probably good behavior again, you know. Yeah. yeah, the bench of shame. Hey, I'm just having some fun. This is a little therapy session for me. I was just <laughs> reflecting. When our class would get in crazy trouble, so they would ban you from recess. Like, you know, that people experience that. Um, they do the same thing in America. It just takes different forms. Not that my daughters, but your daughters have experienced that at school, okay? <laughs> But they would line us up so we'd have to stand in single file line. Like we're supposed to be eating, playing sports with our friends, you know, that recess break. And we had to stand in line, look straight ahead for like 25 minutes. And that's punishment. But it's like you had to show up early so that all of the entirety of the whole school could pass by you on their way to fun fellowship and fried chicken, and you having to stand there, or the walk of shame, you know how that is, you know, you, you're familiar with it, shame, shame, 
It's the pits. <laughs> and it's where the enemy plays with our soul, plays with our heart. We are making our way to John 8. But we're not there yet. One thought or idea that was helpful for me is to also express what shame is not. If we're not careful, everything becomes shame. Shame is not guilt, regret, or embarrassment. Those are different pathways in the brain, so to speak, and emotionally and spiritually. Guilt is normal. It's a healthy emotion that lets you know when you have violated your sense of right and wrong. Right? In scriptures, Jesus would interact with people who were guilty. Okay? He went to the cross for a people who were guilty. Okay? We needed the forgiveness, the mercy. The blood of Jesus covers a multitude of sins. So there is, is, is guilt. Embarrassment, it's a temporary feeling that you understand is common to most people from time to time. Like, when you're embarrassed, you know, hey, you're really not the only one. Usually, it is accompanied with a funny story or two. that you know, later down the line, you can share in a message or something. Embarrassment is it's temporary. But shame can be carried like a label. It moves us from, I've done something wrong, to I am something wrong. You resonate with the difference? To I've done something, to I am something. There's a pastor, Ken Shigematsu. You heard me correctly. Pastor is one of the largest churches in Canada. You're welcome. I've got more needless information if you're interested. But shame can be carried like a label. And uh, something I heard uh, Pastor Ken say that was very helpful, he differentiates from what is called a state of shame to a trait of shame. And a state of shame, biblically, can be verified and validated. It's, it's, it's a temporary usage of, of shame. Sometimes you and I make decisions. We have premeditated consequences of that. That's a, that's a form of shame that can actually be helpful, that can actually be constructive and responsible for us. But it's temporary. It's just it's, it's applied to the circumstance or temporarily applied to a relationship. But this other is it's more insidious, and that's what I'm talking about today. It's that trait shame. It's where it becomes a sense of permanence becomes wired into your DNA. And here's the kicker. The enemy, if I can say this, and, and you, you take it the right way, he, he's got no problem with you being saved. As long as after you're saved, he can still be the accuser of the brethren. As long as he can still come alongside you. But where the enemy gets really caught up and in a mess is when you begin to recognize him as the father of all lies. That you actually move from a place where not only do you have a sense of you've got your ticket for eternity or your relationship for eternity, but when you begin to walk in your God-given authority, God-given purpose, God-given vision, God-given understanding of who you are and who he's called for you to be, and that you are more than a conqueror, not simply called to live a shame-infested life. The enemy would like nothing more. Oh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his bestseller, The Screwtape Letters. 
He talks about, he talks about, oh, well, now that they're saved, distract them. Distract them. One of the ways the enemy does that in our life is he brings up shame. Distracts us, distracts us from who we are and who we're wired to be. One last thought. I promise we're getting to John 8, everybody. I've hinted at this. Shame has a source. It's the enemy of your soul. If there's anything you take, here's his playbook. Accuse and confuse. It's the enemy's playbook. Accuse and confuse. His accusation leads to a confused identity of who you are as his beloved daughter or son. And even after we've given our life to Christ, even after we've had a reprieve and are walking in the ways of the Lord and growing in the ways of the Lord, the enemy knows his timing. He comes alongside of us to accuse us, to confuse us of our identity. One could make the argument for Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted and tried by the accuser. Is that the enemy was giving him shortcuts for how to do ministry, how to live his life. And each time he declared, it is written, it is written, it is written. Just basically saying, I know who I am because of my father. I know who I am because of my father. I know who I am because of my father. John, chapter 8. In some ways, most of it is a good shame-infested storyline. Perhaps the most shameful portion of the Gospels. And so we'll read this together. I will briefly make note of where we are along the story because I do believe it holds some important details. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Jerusalem or plan to go to Jerusalem, you'll know that it's just, it's really a, a, a strong arm football throw from Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. It's a small, you go Jerusalem, Garden of Gethsemane, and then right up there is the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back at the temple again. Here's why that's important. He's at the temple of all temples, the Jerusalem temple, the sacred holy site for the Israelites, where true worship and their entire religious order, okay? We're familiar with the Supreme Court. I'm just going to take that as a yes, so I don't have to get detail, right? Certain cases go all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is in Washington, D.C., okay? So religiously speaking, there were local synagogues, but in Jerusalem was the synagogue. For the Jewish people, this is the place where heaven and earth meet, the holy temple to Yahweh. And you're familiar with King David? King David stored up the treasure. God said, you got too much blood on your hands. Give it to your son. His son, Solomon, built the temple, okay? This is that place. 
A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. This is, in some ways, the ultimate test of all tests. Because if you're unfamiliar with Jesus' story, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, the priests, everybody was trying to get Jesus tricked or set up so that they could call him a heretic and silence his voice. So this is kind of the quintessential ultimate play. It's not Jesus we call a lady stealing. Jesus we call a lady disregarding her husband in public, all of which would be important rules broken. But the ultimate, the act of adultery, not post-adultery, not pre-adultery, in the act of adultery. Moving on. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? This is a softball, uh, a, a, a softball ruling. This is easy. This is easy material. You, they could have brought this situation up to people that were, you know, disciples of other rabbis, and they'd have been like, well, of course, you stoner. Oh, this is easy peasy. Hear how the Father, through Christ, responds. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, all right, you're right. You're right. You're right. Ever had the enemy whisper something and you know that you know it's true? You're right. You're correct. That was me. I did it. I did it. That was me. Nobody else. All me. I did it. All right. All right. All right. But let the one who has never sinned Throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. We get a short story, but a pivotal story to understanding the heart of the Heavenly Father. Every one of those Pharisees would have had the first five books of the Bible, by all historical accounts, memorized. And they would have spent years in training, scrutinizing verse after verse after verse after verse. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the whole kit and caboodle, those first five books. Not only that, they'd have been tremendously familiar with the minor and major prophets, as well as the books of wisdom. The best of the best. In the most qualifying city to be the best of the best, Jerusalem. 
It's like the Supreme Court in D.C., like the best of the best. They're going to they're gonna make it, and they're going to dialogue, and they're going to spend some time, and they're going to have all the laws and rules and all this, and here they are trapping Jesus. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 is an entire introduction about Jesus being the only one who had come, who knew the Father, because he was with the Father before all of creation even began. And Jesus, in this moment, makes a statement that your soul has to wrestle with sometime, somewhere, the sooner the better. And here's the statement. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Do you know people keep great lengths, great excuses, great distance from church life, from God life, because of condemnation, because of shame? It's not easy. I can't tell you how I settled it all and grew in it over the years. I am a recovering self Righteous addict. I had a hard heart. Condemnation. Condescending. You're welcome. But over the years, I really began to wrestle with the tension of the heart of the Father. And it's become part of my life mission to put that before anything else. And to do my best when when I'm having a good day, y'all. To embody the heart of the Father. I spent most of my life so far embodying the heart of the Pharisees in this story. But I'm trying to be a little bit more like Jesus every day. Most of us probably are not going to be brought forth by the religious rulers of the day caught in the act of adultery. But there is a different season, a different moment, a different label that it's not in the pages of Scripture, it's in the pages of your soul. It's a misstep, it's a brokenness, it's a mistake, it's sin, or it's a sense of unworthiness. And it's shame coming in in real time Many times with a highlight reel. And it's looking to define who you are and whose you are. And it wants to lead you to a place of abandonment from God. Time and time again, Scripture describes from all the millennia ago in the First Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. The heart of the Father comes along and says, Neither do I condemn you. And the religious side of us, or side of me, wants to say they're guilty. And Jesus says, You're right. You're right. I'm guilty. You're right. 
But we don't get the last word on people's lives, especially our own. It is for our guilt that in greater measure we need the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and the peace of God. One of the tactics of the enemy that shuts down the forgiveness of God in our own soul is condemnation. Condemnation leaves us paralyzed. Conviction leaves us empowered. Conviction is this phrase where Jesus says, go and sin no more. It's the grace of God and the truth of God. It's the grace of God and the truth of God. So how do we end a sermon like this? With three points, of course. The first, I've spent most of the time saying, hear your heavenly Father. Hear the voice of your heavenly Father. Hear the voice of your heavenly father if you're here for the first time and in some ways maybe here for the last time know this our desire is that you would hear the voice of your heavenly father hillside is a vessel that you would hear the voice of your heavenly father hear it hear god say i love you like i love you like i love you on the worst of the worst days in your weakest most wrongful moment Jesus wants to redefine and relabel who you think you are. It's the blood of Jesus that silences the accusation of the enemy. You can't do this in self-help strength. You have to apply the blood of Jesus, the mercy of God on display. The cross of Christ is the foolishness that the world knows nothing of and empowers us to live a life as the beloved, healed, whole of God. And it silences the wickedness and the voice of accusation and shame. But the second is, I think, equally as important. And that is healthy community. Because you were shaped, labeled, and named by other people. The place you were born into, your parents, your uncles, your aunts, your friends, your grandparents, your coaches, your guardians, your professors. It got on you. It got in you. But now you're in a new family of God where you are written with a new name, a new description. And vulnerability does not come easy to any one of us, to which we all said. And shame, as you approach... The threshold of vulnerability has a really good catchphrase. Don't do it. Don't say it. Run away. (laughs) Hide, hide, hide. Hide, hide, hide. In order to step into shame off you, you need the healing of life-giving, loving, trusted community to look you in the face. And I'm not going to make eye contact. To look you in the face (laughs) and say, you are not your affair. You are not your divorce. 
you are not a bad parent. You are not an orphan. You are not an addict. You are not your sin. You are a daughter, a son of the living God. You need to know the truth of who Jesus says you are. To surround our, we need, we need that community. We need that healing, that health, that wholeness. You are not your anger, somebody. You are not your shame. You are not your doubt. You are not your mistake. Because the voice of the accuser, it does not want you vulnerable. It wants you trapped and isolated. Take it from Adam and Eve. The moment after the fall, what are they doing? They're running and hiding. And what's God doing? He's drawing near. Oh my goodness, how the church has got this wrong sometimes. No. God is always going the distance. You've got to have, you've got to have, it's not easy. It's not easy. I don't want to propose. Man, that sounded good. People clap. We get the feels. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I get all that. I get all that. But it's as scary as heaven to be vulnerable. And I'm not saying you need to post nothing on Facebook. But I am saying one or two trusted voices. I think C.S. Lewis, I'm going to butcher the quote. Hey, a sermon with two C.S. Lewis moments. That's good. That's good. Feel the spirit. Anyhow, um, where was I? C.S. Lewis says, friendship is like, oh, you have that problem too. So do I. That's a pretty good picture of vulnerable relationship because here's what happens. Even James, the half-brother of Jesus, he would say, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed, whole, healthy. They understood the plague and the temptation and the test of the enemy is to accuse us, but God is coming to set us free. Kirk Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, he writes this, we deeply long for connection, to be seen and known for who we are without rejection. But we are terrified of the vulnerability that is required for that very contact. And shame is the variable that mediates that fear of rejection in the face of vulnerability. We are shaped by those who name us. So having a spouse, family, friends name us and share whole and good characteristics over us is healing and helpful. Hebrews 12.1, it points to this. It says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You see what happens? The cloud of witnesses, affirming, loving, speaking words, renaming us, healing us. Here's what's crazy. It actually empowers you to living whole and free. One of the things AA gets right, really right, well, I think pretty much everything AA does get right, let me say that, but is that raw, authentic community where you can admit 
and confess without judgment. They're not perfect. Don't mis- Listen, we're human. But can I tell you, that's one of the things and one of the most empowering realities to walking into freedom is knowing that there are others who can help us walk through and out of shame. Amen? And that's part of who, trust me, if you think we're perfect, we're not. We're trying to be healthier as a church. We're trying to be healthier in our small groups, in our relationships, in our friendships. And my prayer is, as a church, even when the going gets tough, even when the sin gets crazy, even when everything within us is wanting to shower shame on somebody, we can peel back lovingly, prayerfully, thoughtfully, and intentionally silence the voice of the accuser and say, shame off you in Jesus' name. That people would recognize how loved they are by God and step in to that future called, set apart, and sanctified and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That we would become not only uh, 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 behavior modified, no, 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 loving, kind, compelling to the world around us. Amen? That we would taste and see the depths of God's love for us. So that's what you do on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Talk on something light. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Just kidding. That's what you do right before Christmas at the movies, somebody. Talk on shame. All right. Hey, I want to just invite the Holy Spirit, uh, if this resonated with you, just where you are, we're going to close the service. Actually, we're about to close the service, but I'm going to close this message with prayer for you. Just right, just right where you are. I'm going to use some Bible phrases, some Bible words over you. That you are... Holy, beloved, forgiven, free, a child of the living God. And you need to know that shame is a burden and it will cripple your life. It will exhaust you. Shame is the worst shepherd in the world because here's the deal you never have a good day you never measure up when shame is leading your life but available to each and every one of us is the scriptures called the good shepherd the son of the living God King Jesus who endured the cross clothing himself and despising the shame that came with it for the joy that was set before him. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. Is that when every, every accusation is accurate and correct, God says, not so fast. And he brings us into his family turns sinners into saints. Takes the broken and makes them whole. Takes the sick 
and brings healing. Takes the dead spaces and brings resurrection. But here's the kicker. I can't do this for you. Are you willing to lay your shame down? Are you willing to put it at the foot of the cross? Are you willing to embrace a new life in Christ? Call upon him even right now. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, save us. Jesus, heal us. Jesus, forgive us. Jesus, we need you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lead us in the ways of life and everlasting life. Lord, may we be vessels, vessels of conviction, compassion, and kindness and the good news of the gospel, the cross of Christ that is held high to save the world. And forgive us for our moments of condemnation, God, of accusation, of fear. Forgive us for those moments, God. Help us to get better by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.